Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to pray for me and those of you on the internet 
pray for your pastors, because if they're doing the job well, there's a certain amount of uh, trouble that comes with the job. So I'm, I'm operating today on barely two hours of sleep, if you want to call it sleep. I just trusted that if I could get here, if I could just get to this pulpit, that God would meet me here yet again like he always does, and that you know how it works. You've seen it time and time again. I'll feel fine for the next hour. And then as soon as I'm done, I will go straight to coma. That's my plan. In fact, that's my schedule for today. Get out of bed, preach, coma. That's the plan. Turn to the book of Mark. We are in chapter 1. We are starting at verse 29. Last week we introduced the book of Mark. And I hope that you've seen so far that Mark is moving very quickly through a succession of events, things that Jesus did. Mark concentrates on the things Jesus does and doesn't spend a lot of time telling us the things that Jesus says. He only includes the things that Jesus said when it helps to advance the story that he's telling. But right away from the baptism of Jesus, he started telling about a voice from heaven that was well-pleased, showing that Jesus had authority in heaven. And then immediately he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil and showing that he had authority over the devil. And then after that, he came preaching the gospel of God and starts calling disciples to himself, saying to Peter, follow me, saying to John, saying to James, saying to his brother, saying, just follow me. He doesn't explain himself. He doesn't say, if you do follow me, there will be a lot of benefit to you. He doesn't offer them a bigger house or a better car. He doesn't tell them they're going to have perfect health. In fact, he ends up telling them that they're going to die as witnesses, as martyrs, testifying about him. And yet, despite that threat of death and trouble and being hated by the world. Nevertheless, he says to them, follow me, and they follow, which proves that Jesus has authority over human beings. Well, now you're going to see him not only teaching, teaching with authority, and of course, when he did that in the temple, the leaders in the temple said, this is a new teaching, but he teaches with such authority. He doesn't teach like the scribes who are saying, well, the book says. Instead, Jesus stands up and teaches, I say. He has absolute authority. And now Mark is going to turn his attention to the fact that Jesus has the authority to heal and that he has the authority to cast out demons. So there's really no realm, if you look at the entirety of the first chapter of Mark, there's really no realm in which Mark hasn't said Jesus has authority. That's the point. That entire rambling introduction was to say Mark keeps pointing out that in every sphere, in every aspect of life and eternal life, in heaven, hell, and earth, Jesus has authority. We know that Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Well, he's demonstrating that, and Mark wants you to know that, because Mark is going to just very quickly recite the things that he is aware of that prove that Jesus is the Son of God so that he can get to the Passion Week, so that he can get to Jesus died on a cross and resurrected again, so that we will know who it is that died on a cross. There was a thief on either side of him that died on a cross. Their death meant nothing. Their death accomplished nothing. But there was one, the Son of God, who died on a cross, and his death accomplished everything. His death accomplished the eternal salvation of all the people that God has chosen since before the foundation of the world. That is a very effective death. Everybody else's death, every other death, every other crucifixion, every other martyr, everybody who agonized in death, all that accomplished was their death. But in the death of Christ, 
the plan of God since the foundation of the world was brought to its fruition. And that's really what Mark is driving at. So he's moving very quickly through these things. Now, to give you some sense of how quickly he's moving through these things, I want to introduce you to a Greek word. In English letters, E-U-T-H-U-S, euthus, that word technically means to be straight and level. And so that word also is the basis of ideas like being straightforward or for things happening straight away. Now, this word, euthus, is used 60 times in the New Testament. 52 of those times, Mark uses it to give you some idea how much he likes this word. That word is translated immediately. And so Mark keeps saying over and over again, immediately, immediately. Now, I think I just misspoke. 52 times it's translated as immediately. 41 of those times it's in the book of Mark. That's the correct way to spell it out. So I just want you to get some sense of how Mark uses language. Now, some commentators will tell you that it's because of Mark's youth or that he's not very sophisticated. It's true that he writes in a very street Greek, a very koine Greek, and he just wants to keep the story moving. So also pay attention, as we continue reading through Mark, how often he uses the word in English letters, K-A-I. We would pronounce that chi. It is translated and. It's just a joinder. And this. And and, and immediately, and he combines and immediately over and over again, but he keeps saying, then this happened, and this happened, and, the, and, and this, and this, because he wants his reader to just move along with the succession of events that he is describing. Now, when he uses the word immediately, I don't think he's saying that chronologically things happened instantaneously after the last thing. But he wants you to know that the things he's reciting took place very quickly after the last thing that happened. And so he keeps using this word, euthus. And in verse 29 of chapter 1, it starts again with, and immediately. And he's going to keep saying that, and, and, and. Just go back a few verses. Go back to verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, verse 16, and as he was going along the Sea of Galilee, verse 17, and Jesus said to them, verse 18, and they immediately left their nets and followed him, verse 19, and going on a little bit further, verse 20, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and and they went away and followed him. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum. Verse 22, and they were amazed at his teaching. Verse 23, and just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 25, and Jesus rebuked them. Verse 26, and throwing him into convulsions. And then he came out, verse 27, and they were all amazed, verse 28, and immediately the news about him went out everywhere. You getting the feeling for this? Mark really, really likes joining ideas with the word chi, with his ands. And he loves the word immediately. And immediately that happened. Verse 29, and immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, this is in Capernaum, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. That's the first and only indication we get that Peter was married because Peter had a mother-in-law. But she was lying sick with a fever. And immediately, they spoke to him about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. That brief little story there is Mark's way of indicating 
he has complete control over things like fevers. Now, Mark is going to be very, very careful to differentiate the difference between sickness, illness, and demonic possession. In the name-it-claim-it, hyper-spiritualized version of Christianity that's out there, anytime that people get sick, they blame it on a demon. I'm sorry you have a demon of a cold, or you have a demon of a flu, and so just don't confess that. Don't confess that you have it, and then the devil won't know you have it, and maybe he'll leave you alone. Jesus heals sicknesses, and he drives out demons. And Mark takes the time to differentiate both of those because sometimes people are sick just because they're sick, because a virus got a hold of them, because they ate something bad, because some disease is in their body, and that is sickness. It's not always spiritual oppression. It's not demonic possession. It's sickness. Now, sometimes people that Jesus encountered were in fact demonically possessed and that demonstrated itself in an outgrowth of sickness. But sometimes they're just sick. So after Jesus heals the fever of Simon's mother-in-law, word goes out that he has the ability to do that. And so verse 32 tells us, and when the evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. Now, I assume that Mark is engaging in a little bit of hyperbole there. I assume that the entire city didn't show up. But what he wants you to know is that there was a mass of people. Are you familiar with the, uh, the Jesus movie that came out a couple of years ago? Do you, did anybody see that? It was on TV in a series, a Jesus movie. One of the things that they emphasized in that movie was that Jesus always had just a small crowd of people around him. Poor Jesus and his 12 disciples just walking around, begging for alms from people and barely getting by. You don't see that in the Bible. What you see is entire cities coming out to see him. Now, granted, some of those people were showing up because he's healing people. If you have a sickness and there's a healer, go to him. He's healing people and they are actually getting healed. Unlike the modern day healing evangelists who don't actually heal anybody, Jesus is actually healing. Well, you can see where that would draw a crowd. So Jesus, having drawn a crowd, decides to also do a bit of teaching because, after all, that's what he's here for. When the evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. If you're Simon's mother-in-law and you've invited Jesus in and you're waiting on them and he's there with his four disciples so far and the whole city comes to your door, you don't know where to put everybody. But you can imagine that they're just pressing in. They get as many people through the door as they can possibly get. In fact, in a minute, we're going to find out that there were so many people trying to get to Jesus that when four men brought a paralytic to Jesus, they couldn't even get in. There were so many people. There was just a mob of people they couldn't get in. So they get creative. Here's what happens. Verse 34, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Isn't that interesting? The people showed up because there's healing going on. The demons know who he is. You would think that the people would be there because they know who he is. The very son of God is in our presence. 
the very son of God in shoe leather is in Capernaum right now and he's over there in Simon's house let's go find him they go to see him because he's healing but the demons know that he is the very son of God and they are fearful of him because they know that all authority is in him and that they are headed eventually for judgment for the abyss and he's the one that's going to send them there so they ask him questions like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, it makes sense that I'm here. I'm a demon. I've been thrown out of heaven. I'm, I'm taking up residency in human beings. I'm causing all sorts of trouble here on planet Earth. That makes sense. But what are you doing here? You're the son of God. And then, of course, typical ego. <laughs> one of the things that human beings share with demons Typical ego, they start with, uh, are you here to cast us into the abyss? It's about us, right? You're here because of us. No, he's here because that was the plan of God since before the foundation of the world. So he healed many who were ill with various diseases. He cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak. By the way, that shows absolute authority over the demons. They wanted to speak. He wouldn't let them. He wouldn't let them. Why? They would have convinced everyone that he's son of God. They would have Look, even the demons know that's the son of God. Human beings are going to go, well, then that must be true. I mean, even the demons recognize him as the son of God. So he tells the demons, don't tell them who I am. It's not my time yet. Eventually, he's going to make it very obvious, very apparent who he is. And eventually human beings are going to hate him so much for equating himself with God that they are going to kill him. But that has to happen at a particular date, on a particular Passover, in a particular year, and it's not time yet. So Jesus keeps saying, it's not my time. Not yet. So he's going about doing good, he's going about healing, he's going about driving out demons, but even the demons who know who he is aren't allowed to tell anybody. Verse 35, and in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Now, Mark just moves on from there. But I really think we ought to pause on phrases like that and take a deep breath because this is a place where the very son of God is praying to his father. Though he's on the planet and has authority, though he has authority over all people and all demons and all sickness and all nature, though he has authority across the board, nevertheless, he sees it as vitally important to have time to pray to his father. He needs time to commune with his father. And he can't be interrupted by people. He doesn't want to be interrupted by people. So he goes off to a lonely place, out into the wilderness, up into a mountaintop, someplace where he can be alone so that he and his father can commune. If Jesus, the only righteous one, the only holy one, if Jesus, the only one with all the authority, prioritized prayer that way in his own life, what should that tell you? You certainly ought to spend time alone, you and God. You certainly ought to be praying to your Father. I hear folks sometimes say, well, I don't know how to pray. I have a hard time praying. I can't pray. Well, then go and praise him. Go and tell him you are almighty. You are divine. You are good. You are holy. You are the loving God and you have brought me this far through my life. You'll be surprised once you start praising him how easy it becomes to start thanking him, to start worshiping him, and then eventually to getting around to admitting your absolute dependence on him. And get this right, all of humankind, all of human philosophy tells you that a really good self-made man is independent. We have songs about it. Independence. We're very into that. 
We, we write declarations of independence. We're completely independent. The last thing you want to be is completely independent. You need to recognize your dependence on God, and there's no better way to learn that dependence than to get down on your face. Make yourself get down before God. Get down on your knees. Put your body in that posture where you are before him in humility and recognize your dependence on him. Because Jesus, as I keep saying, the very Lord of glory, found it important to be alone with God and go pray to his father. So are they going to leave him alone? He clearly wants to be alone. He's left Capernaum. He's gone into a lonely wilderness place. He's gone there to pray. What do they do? Go find him. Do not let that guy. He's healing people. He's driving out demons. He's doing good beneficial things for us. Let's go find him. So while it was still dark, he arose and he went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. Don't just leave him. Don't assume he knows what he's doing. Let's go get him. And they found him. And they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Well, yeah. They don't care about what he needs. They care about their needs. Do things for me. Heal me. Feed me. Drive out demons for me. Make my life better. Everyone is looking for you. And he said, notice this, it's really interesting. He doesn't say, well, let's go back into Capernaum then because they're the ones that are looking for me. In other words, these would be the seekers. Remember that movement that happened a while ago, the seeker-sensitive movement, where churches said that they have to formulate their theology and their preaching in such a way that it is appealing to unbelievers who might just be seeking answers. They might be seeking Jesus, and so we have to be seeker-sensitive. We have to care about those seekers and not offend their conscience because you never know, they might make a decision. They might choose Jesus, so you have to kind of kowtow to them, kind of coddle them along the way because they're seekers. Okay, Jesus, everyone is seeking you. What does he do? He doesn't say, well, well, then we should get back to them right away because they're seeking me, and they might make a decision for me, and they might make me their Lord and Savior. I better get back to them. Jesus says, well, then let's go somewhere else. That's the answer. Jesus is in complete control. He was in Capernaum. He was healing. He was driving out demons. He accomplished what he wanted to there. He had other places to be, other things to do, other people to draw to himself. He only had four apostles at this point. He's going to get himself up to 12 because of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's got stuff to do. Everyone is looking for you. He said, well, then let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. For what purpose? In order that I may preach there also. For that is what I came to do. That's what he came to do. Sure, he did the healing. Sure, he did the driving out demons. Sure, he did all the stuff where he took authority. But the primary reason he came, the primary reason the Son of God was on the planet is to tell people stuff they can't otherwise know. You can't know. You can't know God. You can't know heaven. He described it like it was his living room. He described God and his relationship like God. He knew him like the back of his hand. He had been with him forever. You can't know that. You can't have that kind of knowledge, that kind of intimacy with God. So he is on the planet for the purpose of preaching, teaching, telling people things about God that they simply could not otherwise know. You can 
listen to a babbling brook and hug all the trees you want. You can stare at a rock from now until doomsday and you're never going to understand substitutionary atonement. Somebody has to tell you about that. God's word has to tell you about that. You can, you can go out and just be the nicest person in the world and you can feed everybody you come across and you can give away all your earthly possessions and you can just be the most humble person that ever existed. You're not going to understand election. That has to be taught to you. Someone has to tell you that. And the person who came to tell you that is the very son of God because nobody else could know it. But he knows it. He knows it well. So he came to preach. And having done what he wanted to do in Capernaum, he said, well, then let's go somewhere else. I've still got preaching to do. Notice he didn't say, let's go somewhere else because I got healing to do. Let's go somewhere else because somebody else might make a decision for me. No, I've got to go somewhere else because I must teach. I've come to preach. He said, that's what I'm here for. Sandy, I saw your hand go up. Yeah, I'm reminded of what Christ said about the wicked and the adulterous generation, the seeking after signs and wonders. So I imagine that probably was in his mind as well. Yeah, a wicked and adulterous generation needs a sign to believe. But no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Mm-hmm. That's one of the main complaints people have is if God exists, why doesn't he just tell us? Why doesn't he just show us? Why doesn't he do stuff? Yeah, why doesn't he just... Why doesn't he make himself obvious? Crack the sky. And Come back and heal everybody. There's all these examples of Jesus saying no. You know, don't, yeah. don't tell them. Yeah. Don't tell them. And I'm not going to do anything for them. Verse 39... And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Okay, now why the synagogues? Because the synagogues were the religious meeting place for the Jews. But the synagogue was also where you're going to find maximum Pharisees. (laughs) Yes, that's the phrase, maximum Pharisees. And now Mark is going to start turning his attention to how often Jesus offended the religious leaders. How often he offends the Pharisees. And he does it on purpose. He breaks the Sabbath day right in front of them. He does things that that no thoroughgoing Jew would do because it could potentially be breaking the law of Moses and could get you cast out of the synagogue. He is going into the synagogue and he is teaching, he is preaching. Now Mark doesn't record what the preachment is. We just know that he's preaching about the kingdom of God, the gospel of God. We have to assume that he's preaching all of this totally in league with what the Old Testament and the prophets have said, but he's also putting a new spin on it because what we do read is people saying, what is this new teaching that also has this authority behind it? So he's obviously bringing the Jews along from where they were under Moses to where they're going to be under him. And he went into the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Okay, stop right there. Because that's the exact right phrase. Notice he did not say, Jesus I believe in you, and I probably have enough faith to be healed. Because isn't that what the faith healers tell us? That if you're not healed, it's probably because you just didn't have enough faith. If you had revved up a greater amount of faith, then Jesus would have been obligated to heal you. You didn't get healed. You don't have enough faith. This guy doesn't even bring up his own works, his own faith, his own anything. He gets down in front of Jesus. He gets down where he belongs. He gets down on his knees in front of him and says, if you're willing, you can help me. I know you have the power. I know you have the authority. If you're willing, you can help me. Notice also 
Where is the will in this relationship? He didn't say, I'm willing that you should heal me. I've got leprosy, which, by the way, it's kind of bold of him with leprosy to get right up in front of Jesus anyway. Jesus didn't go, ooh, ooh, a leper. Instead, he said, you're the Lord. You're the healer. You're God Almighty. That's why I'm on my knees in front of you. And if you are willing, I know you can help me. And that is the relationship across the board. Can God heal you? Yes. 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 Does he have the authority and the ability to heal you? Yes. Yes. Why doesn't he always, always heal you? It's not up to you. And it's not his will. And sometimes the sicknesses and the diseases and the problems that you go through in this lifetime are building faith in you, are building dependence in you. And he's doing it on purpose, and he knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. Sometimes he heals you. Sometimes you're sick, 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 and suddenly one day you're okay again. Okay, well, God just implemented that healing thing that he does so well. But he doesn't do it all the time because it's up to him. So I say when you go and pray to him, if you've got... uh, any kind of sickness, any kind of disease, any kind of shortfalling in your body, you should not go and pray, heal me because I have enough faith. Do good for me because I have enough faith. You should always pray, you are sovereign. You're the one who's in charge. If you're willing, you can help me. Because he is sovereign, he is in charge, and he knows what that sickness is designed to do for you. And if he's willing, he can take it away. So a leper comes to him, besieging him and falling on his knees before him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand, touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. Just those words, be cleansed, the leprosy's gone. And immediately, there he is again, and immediately, there's that word again, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And then very interestingly, the same way that Jesus keeps telling the demons to be quiet and don't reveal who he is, He now says to the man, now you got to know, you got to know, you've got to know that this guy can't wait to tell everybody. I was a leper, and then a man said to me, be clean, and I was clean. I couldn't get rid of my leprosy any other way. I got down on my knees in front of a man who touched me. I'm clean. You know, he wants to tell everybody. Jesus warns him, verse 43 He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourselves to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Okay, well, that's kind of a jam-packed verse. First off, notice that Jesus did not say, well, now ignore all the rules of Moses and the rules of Sinai and the rules of the law. Because up until the inception of the new covenant, which happened at his death, they are still living under the old covenant. And that is a perfectly good law and a perfectly good covenant. Isn't that what we've been reading in the book of Romans during men's meeting? That the law is perfectly good, righteous, and holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. So, of course, Jesus is going to say, you being a Jew have now been cleansed. But, you know, the Levitical law requires that you go sacrifice several sacrifices, a week long of sacrifices, so that the priest can keep looking at you and make sure that you're actually clean and that you're allowed back into the temple. So go and do that. Take the sacrifices, but do that as a testimony to them. In other words, Jesus said, 
do what the Pharisees, what the leaders and the priests do, what they tell you to do, because they're working out of the book of the law. They're working out of the book of Moses. Do what they say to do. Don't do like they do. He knew they were hypocrites, but he knew the law was still right. He knew that the leaders had abused the rules of Moses, but that doesn't make the rules of Moses wrong. So he says, go as a testimony to them, show yourself as clean, and give all the sacrifices, and see that you say nothing to anyone. Verse 45, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around. He couldn't keep it to himself. Because after all, there's uh, Bob the leper. Okay, you, you know Bob the leper. Bob, Bob has parents. Bob has friends. Bob has some kind of family. And then Bob one day comes down with leprosy. Bob, by the way, a really good Middle Eastern name. And, and has nothing to do with you, just so you know. So Bob the leper one day realizes he has leprosy. He has to leave his family. He has to leave his kids and his friends and he has to go outside the camp because leprosy was so very contagious. So he has to leave with his leprosy. Now he's clean. Now no leprosy. Now he's given all his sacrifices and declared clean by the priests in the temple. You don't think he's going to go show his mom and dad? You don't think he's going to run to his kids and his family and say, I'm clean. Look at this, I'm clean. And they're going to go, how? How did you get clean? What'd you do? He's going to say, well, there was this man. (laughs) And he he demonstrated that he was the son of God with power. And I got down on my knees in front of him and he declared me clean. By golly, I'm clean. He couldn't wait to tell people. Despite the fact that Jesus said, no, don't tell people. By the way, look at the comparison. The demons were instructed to be quiet and apparently they were. Human beings are told to be quiet, and they can't wait to just gab about it and shoot their mouth off and look what's happened. I think if somebody has the authority to do something like this, who has the authority to drive out demons, who has the authority to heal sicknesses, whatever he tells you to do, do that. If he tells you don't tell anybody, then don't tell anybody. But man, we just can't wait to tell somebody. This, by the way, I think, is why Facebook did not exist 2,000 years ago. Because you know he'd be on Facebook immediately going, look at this, all cleansed. All all 1,400 of my Facebook friends now have to see a picture of me being cleansed. Hashtag no leprosy. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about To such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter the city. Okay, so what kind of crowd is that? There's such a crowd following Jesus that he can no longer go into the city. And he stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. So he stayed outside the cities, wilderness places. They make a beeline for him. They find him. They search him out. Just like the apostle said, don't you know that everyone's looking for you? So unlike the Jesus movie, unlike those documentaries that try to give you the impression that Jesus was just a a poor, wandering, wayfaring stranger in the Middle East who collected a small group of people, and all that small group of people somehow overturned the whole Roman Empire. But that small little group of people... No, Jesus had crowds following him. Now, granted, the crowds that were following him were probably following him for their own benefit, the same way that we read that after he fed them with fishes and loaves, those 3,000, they... they follow him, or was it 5,000? 5,000 then. They follow him when he departs, and he even says to them, you're only following me because I fed your belly. And then he does what he always does. He taught them, and he taught them hard doctrine. 
And they left because they didn't want doctrine. They didn't want teaching. They didn't want to know all the ins and outs of the things of God. They just want more fish, more bread, more healing, fewer demons. That's our war cry now. (laughs) More healing, fewer demons. Put it on a bumper sticker. That's what they want. And so they're pressing in on Jesus no matter where he goes. Crowds and crowds of people, whole cities coming out to see him from everywhere. Chapter 2. And when he had come back to Capernaum, that's why I pointed out that it all started there at Capernaum. So he ends up back in Capernaum several days afterwards. Then it was heard that he was at home. Sure, everybody's going to find that out. So let's go find him. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Notice again what he's doing. He's speaking the word to them. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's not just doing miracles. He's teaching, teaching, teaching. And what is he teaching? Mark calls it the word. That's a very important phrase. He's not just reciting Moses to them. He's not just rubber stamping the law. He is preaching the very word of God, and he is God incarnate. He is preaching the word that brings eternal life. And that is what is going to divide between the people who just want to be there for the gifts they can get for their flesh and the people who are there because they are inexorably drawn to him. My sheep hear my voice. He said that. They do follow me. But once he lays out the hard doctrine, people leave. Which is why one of the apostles come to him and say, don't you know that that's a hard teaching? I mean, who can hear that? So he said hard things on purpose to separate the saved from the fleshly who just wanted the benefit of being around him. Many were gathered together so that there was no longer any room even near the door and he was speaking the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Do you know what the word paralytic means? Have I lost anybody? Paralytic means he was paralyzed. He couldn't move. His arms and his legs don't work. He's breathing as hard as beating but he even needs to be fed. He can't even get there without four men carrying him. So he's laying on a cot on a bed and they're carrying him. But verse 4, and being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Wow, that's clever. They see where he is in the center of the room. There's no way to get to him because he's so surrounded by people. They climb up on the roof. Now, if you're a paralytic guy, follow me here. If you're a paralytic guy and your friends decide to lift you to the roof, you're really trusting your friends. (laughs) They remove the roof because it was probably just mud tiles that had been baked in the sun into like a brickwork, like a terracotta. Is that the word I'm thinking of? So they start removing the roof. So that they can get straight to Jesus. And then they lower the guy down. So there's a room full of people when suddenly there's a paralyzed guy coming down from the ceiling. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening... They let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, now, this is really, really interesting. First off, I don't believe that he healed the paralytic because of the paralytic's faith. That's not what the verse says. The verse says Jesus saw their faith. He saw the faith that the people had who put the paralytic down through the roof. And then Jesus, seeing them, doesn't say, be healed. 
doesn't say be cleaned. Instead, what he says is your sins are forgiven. This is Mark's first indication that Jesus also has authority over sin. And if the wages of sin is death, then Jesus has control over life and death. So he's really emphasizing the authority that Jesus has here. And Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6 says, but there were some scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Do you think Jesus knew they were there? Yes. Sure he did. Do you think he knew that it was going to tweak them? Tweak them. That's the word. Do you think he knew it would tweak them if he said, your sins are forgiven? Because nobody can forgive sin except God. They know that. That's everything the Old Testament teaches. Nobody can forgive sin except God. And now he's saying, your sins are forgiven. Well, you know that they're frustrated by that. So they start arguing with him. Verse 7, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately... Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, follow the logic. This is brilliant logic. Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? What's easier to say? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? Okay, so what he's saying is, if I'm not who I said I am, if I'm not the very Son of God, if I don't really have authority, if I'm just faking my way through this, if I'm just another false Messiah, then what's going to be easier for me to say? This guy is paralyzed. He's come down from the roof and he's in front of me and I say, your sins are forgiven. That's easy. I can say that to anybody. Todd, your sins are forgiven. There, I just said it. Yeah, They may or may not be, but I can say it. It's an easy thing to say. The harder thing to say is, especially to a paralytic, get up and walk. You're healed. Okay, that's the hard thing to say. So Jesus points out, if I can do the hard one, that's going to prove I can do the other one. That proves I have that kind of authority. So Jesus goes on and says... But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turned to the paralytic and said, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he got up, and he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all of them so that they were amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, one last comment. Notice in verse 10, this is one of those examples that I talked about last week where Mark records exactly what Jesus said. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. That language wouldn't mean much to a Gentile audience, but it is what Jesus said. So being an honest reporter, Mark reports exactly what Jesus said, even though it may hurt his story. You know, Jesus should have said, the Son of God, but that's not what he said. He said the Son of Man because Jesus was emphasizing the reality that Daniel had seen one like the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and now Jesus has identified himself as that very one. I am the Son of Man that stands at the very throne of God. That's where I get this kind of authority, not only to heal, not only to drive out demons, but to forgive sin. And I say, and I think you'll all agree with me, I'm really, really happy he can do that. I am really, really grateful that he forgives sin. They're going to blame him. They're going to argue with him. They're going to, they're going to keep throwing charges at him. They're going to say he eats with tax collectors and sinners. But he's going to say, I didn't come to call the righteous. 
I came to call sinners to repentance. That's what I'm here for. And then he's going to use that wonderful example. Well, men don't seek a physician. If you're fine, you don't go to the doctor. But they're seeking me out because there is sickness among them. Not just the sickness in their bodies, not just the paralysis, not just the leprosy, but there is the cancer of sin in them. And it is killing them. I have life. I have the ability to forgive their sin. I have the ability to raise them up to the newness of life and give them eternal life. So that's what Mark is driving at. So by the time he gets to, there's a man on a cross, you know which man that is. Do you get the message this morning? Do you get the point? Now let, me, let me tell you one more thing. Then I'm going to let you go. Because I know in exactly two minutes, Jeff and Jennifer have to jump up and run out. <laughs> Because they told me, they said, we have to leave at 12, and I just want you to know ahead of time, it's not because of the message. (laughs) And I said, you don't know that yet. And so they're going to have to leave here really soon. But let me tell you one more thing. There was no way I should have been able to stand up and do this today. But you're following, you're watching another example of God's grace. And next time you're hurting... Next time you're struggling, go to him because he'll get you through it. And I'm here to testify to that because I needed a word from God. And I found one. (laughs) So, all right. Any questions about that? Yes, sir. It seems to me, you may correct me on this, but it seems to me that at least according to the rules of the Pharisees, Jesus was not supposed to touch this man. Absolutely. Yeah, he was a leper. You don't touch him. And yet he did so without breaking the law. Yeah. Because he never broke the law. Coming up, that's all going to be brought out when, he, when they uh, are eating corn with unwashed hands and they're accused and Jesus says, Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And then he reminds them of how David broke the law and ate the showbread. So Jesus is going to deal with that stuff, that this is about people. It's not about the strict adherence to the law. And uh, good stuff coming up. Yes, sir? So if Jesus had the power to forgive sin, say always, then the death on the cross was like a, a formality that he had to fulfill in the Old Testament? That's why there was 1,400 years of sin offerings and they were to propitiate the wrath of God because not only does sin have to be forgiven, sin has to be paid for. And so he gave himself a ransom. That's the biblical language. He turned himself over to be the ransom to God to ransom us out of our sinfulness and out of our guilt and then he propitiated the wrath of God. So it had to be done. To Say that again? It had to be done to get rid of that. Right, right. That had to be done to get rid of our guilt. Because not only are we wanting to go into God's presence sinless, but we also need the absolute righteousness of God. And the only way we can get that is from the Son of God imputing his righteousness to us. So he does it all. He does the part of propitiating man and God, making reconciliation between God and man. And he does the part of taking our sin upon himself and paying for it. And then he does the forgiving the sin part, but then he does the righteous part and imputing the righteousness to us. So we get credit for nothing. Anything else? Those um, those demons that said to Jesus, have you come come to a I think they knew the events because once those things are said and written down they know that there's a time that the time is coming it's predicted in the Old Testament but it's really fleshed out in the New Testament there's got to be an antichrist there's going to be a time of tribulation there's going to be a time of the general resurrection there's going to be a a millennium and a kingdom 
And so all of that is going to culminate in them being thrown into the lake of fire and stuff. So they know that there's a timeline ticking out, but they had to have assumed that they had lots of time. And then suddenly he's here. It's like, wait, that's not the way that was supposed to work out. So I don't think they knew the day and the hour. They knew that it was coming and that he was the one that was going to do it. Same way we don't know the day and hour, but we can watch the events. Same way Jesus said, you know how to tell time by fig trees blooming. You certainly ought to be watching for the signs. I just want to say I love asking you stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. Anything else? All right, let's do this. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.